This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. You're listening to Working, the show about what people do all day. I'm your host, Jordan Weissman, and this week I'm sort of continuing the loose nautical theme. We've decided to kind of do an on-the-waterfront season unofficially. Some of our next episodes are going to hew to that theme. Some of them are not. Obviously, we had the uh, fireworks designer uh, last week who uh, actually his work involves staying the hell away from water. This week, though, I am going to be talking with a man named Jeff McAllister, who is a tugboat pilot. Well, that's not technically what the job is called. Uh, I think it's actually a ship docking pilot. But in my head, I refer to him as a tugboat pilot, and I think that is the easiest way to think about his job. And it's a really cool job. When a giant container ship comes into New York Harbor, it has to have some tugboats help it dock. That is what a tugboat typically does. However, somebody has to get on that giant container ship and orchestrate the whole show. And that's the pilot. Um, It's sort of the highest job in the tugboat hierarchy. It's above captain. And Jeff works for his family's business. McAllister Towing, they've been around, I want to say, 150 years uh, or something along those lines. They work all over the world. And some of Jeff's family is in management and, you know, owns, runs the company. Uh, Jeff has spent his life actually on the water. That's what he likes doing. And so, you know, I went down to their shipping yard in Staten Island to meet him and kind of see the scene and actually get on a tugboat, which was a a very nerdy and fun thing for me to do. And we had our interview down in sort of living quarters of the offices, which are on a kind of decommissioned barge. It was very fun and it was kind of a joy to talk and just learn about this weird and actually kind of frighteningly dangerous job. I hope you enjoy What's your name and what do you do? My name is Jeffrey McAllister and I'm a ship docking pilot, a senior ship docking pilot for McAllister Towing out of New York. And uh, what is McAllister Towing? It is a a tugboat company. It's uh, more than 150 years old, started by my great-great-grandfather in 1864. He came from Ireland, wrecked off somewhere way up in Eastern Canada and made his way to New York, started this company in 1864, and I'm uh, fifth generation in this business. Wait, so he, he wrecked off Canada? He uh, shipwrecked. Yeah, so that was how the shipping company's origin story <laughs> begins yeah. with a wreck. Yeah, he wrecked. He shipwrecked. <laughs> he, he was a, a passenger on a ship, a uh, working mate with papers on a ship that shipwrecked off either Newfoundland or Prince Edward Island, somewhere up there. And uh, he ended up making his way to New York and then started this company in 1864. And what exactly is a pilot? A pilot is a person that gets aboard the ship to guide it safely to the dock. But I I have to clarify, on the east coast of the United States, there's a two-pilot system. You have the sea pilot that brings the ship in from sea. As that ship comes from Europe or Panama Canal, it gets to Ambrose, and then the sea pilot climbs aboard and safely navigates it into the upper bay of New York Harbor. At that point, the ship needs tugboat assistance to get that micro-navigation 
to get it safely to a pier. With the tugboat assistance, they require a docking pilot to make sure that ship gets in safely because the docking pilot knows the currents, how the tugs work, where the berths are, and it's just a very refined system and it makes for a very, very safe maneuver. So there's a tugboat attached to the ship. What are they exactly? What kind of vessels are we talking about here? Most of our ship work is container ships. Let's call it two-thirds of our work is container ships. One-third of our work is oil tankers. And the container ships are all these tangible items you're buying at Kmart, the furniture, everything that's made in China that's brought in from Europe, everything that comes in a container. And then whatever goes out in a container is is just items that we manufacture in the United States and ship to overseas. And these are all the boats that are coming into the these New York Harbor These are all the ships area. that are coming in. Yeah. And uh, most of them are going to Port Elizabeth or Port Newark, which is right next to Newark Airport. So if you're at Newark Airport and you wonder what all those cranes are and what these ships are doing, they're offloading cargo from China and Europe. And how big is one of these boats that's coming in? Uh, the medium-sized ones are 900 feet the larger ones are 1,100 feet long, and now the largest are 1,200 feet long and 150, 160 feet wide. And they're they've, very big. And they, they've got to be pulled along through the Harbor Century by these little tugboats. They actually have their own power, but okay. as you can imagine, they're, they're very clumsy. They have one propeller, one rudder. They do have a bow thruster, but they're very clumsy, and they just need that little nudge, push, and the local knowledge with the currents to get them safely to the dock. The tugboat is adding a little extra... I call it influencing it. Enhancing okay. it or influencing it, the maneuver. Okay, so they're they're helping guide yeah, it. like and someone pushing a wheelchair, you know, helping it okay. stay in the middle. And so when, when you're navigating through, when you're piloting, are you on the tugboat or are you on the, the vessel itself? As a docking pilot, I got on the vessel when it got into New York's upper bay. So I'm up on the bridge of the ship, and then I relieve the con from the Sandy Hook pilot, and then I take over the con of the ship. So where does your day start? My day starts almost every day at 3 o'clock in the morning. In the morning? In the morning, right here on this barge. My phone rings over there, and they tell me uh, what ship is due, what time it's coming up, what tugs to get on. Uh, maybe there's another job after that. But I'm usually getting up at 3. I'm on the tugboats at 3.30. I'm on board the ship by 4.30 in the morning, and the ship is tied up at 6 o'clock in the morning at its dock in order for the stevedores to start working cargo at 7 or 8 o'clock in the morning. So your job's mostly pre-dawn. Yes. it's uh, For some reason, all these ships, when they leave Europe, they set their sights on Ambrose to be tied up at the dock at 6 o'clock in the morning. So that's your deadline. That's a lot of the deadlines. Now, the ships do, they sometimes sail in the afternoon or the evening uh, or even arrive all day long. Yeah. But the majority is right in the morning. How many days a week? I mean, like, what's your, your schedule? Like, uh, I'm on a, a reduced work schedule. So I come in. Uh, I live in Connecticut. That's my home. But when I come here to Staten Island, I'm on station right here in this barge. My stateroom's right over there. We have the shower facilities here, you know, yeah. the kitchen here. But I'm here for five days. So I'm here for five days, 24 hours a day. They can work me as much as they like. 
And then you go back for... Then I go home for 10 days. Most people are working equal time here and equal time home. It's like five and five kind of thing. Yeah, or a week and a week. If you're doing this job, your family gets to see you every other week, essentially. Yeah. It's going to be a little tough, right? Well, you have to marry a woman that is okay with that. For I mean, most of my life, I was equal time on, equal time off. When I met my now wife, I was working for two weeks in the Bahamas, and then living with her up in whether it was Stowe or Nantucket, wherever we were living, Rowayton. But uh, it takes a special woman that says, okay, you can go to work for two weeks, and I'm okay with that. You come home for two weeks, and okay. Now, and after two weeks, she goes, you know, it's time for you to go back to work for two weeks. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of the way it works. (laughs) And now you get married for a while, and it's like after two days, it's, can you go back to work work. for two weeks? <laughs> so you're living with a bunch of guys, though. For like when you're on, it's it's a bunch of men in, in the state. I mean, we're in your kitchen right and now. You are. Yeah, yep. this place is. I was, I was joking about like we had to move over a, a walk that was on the table. Yeah, the walk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so you guys. I mean, you get pretty close, sir. It's pretty close. It's too close. <laughs> <laughs> it's I like. But yeah. they're all constantly coming and going. So yeah. it's not like we're all sitting around the dinner table together. We're constantly going, coming and going, and we're all whether it's eating out, having a meal in a restaurant or a delicatessen. We're just catching a meal whenever we can. It's very little clubhouse stuff. Yeah, it's your roommates, but that's about it. That's it. It's not Spanky's clubhouse. (laughs) What's the best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com working. Rules and restrictions may apply. So I, I want to start with that morning you wake up, the phone call. I mean, like, first off, when do you go to sleep at night? Like, what time? How many hours are you working on usually? By law, you can only work twelve hours a day, but yeah. we're usually working less than that. Probably, you know, eight to ten hours a day. Yeah, but what time do you get to bed? It really just depends on. Uh, yeah. My job's kind of like a fireman. I never know when the bell's going to ring. Yeah. I never know how it's going to flop. We have usually six pilots on at one time, and this pilot has to go there, that pilot has to go there, that job got delayed, that job got sped up, that job got canceled. So it's always changing, always changing, and you have no set schedule. It's impossible to have a set schedule. So how much coffee do you drink when you start your morning? (laughs) Uh, I used to drink a lot more coffee than I do now. Now it's just... uh, 
one or two cups yeah. in the morning. And then it's usually for every ship job I do, I will, on my way out to the ship, I'll have a cup of coffee just, just to be up. razor edge sharp when the time comes. So I was going to say, so you get that call. How many ships, I mean, like what's normal? How many ships are you, gonna, are you being told about? I'm usually told at one at a time, maybe two at a time, yeah. but I usually do at least three every day that I'm working. Okay. And so you go out on the tugboat then to meet the ship. Correct. Well, tell me about that process. You, you go out there. How do you attach the tugboat to the ship? Well, first we have to do the transfer, the pilot transfer from the tug to the ship. And the ship slows down to about six knots. The tug comes alongside. What's a six knots? How fast is that? Six for a, knots is about seven or eight miles an hour. That's fairly fast for on the water, right? Or, it's, you know, it's jogging speed. You, okay. know, you walk at three knots and you jog at six knots. That's helpful. Okay, yeah. so it, it goes to a jogging yeah. speed. Yeah, so on it's the water. jogging speed. We come. The tug comes alongside right at the pilot ladder. The deckhand on the tug assist me getting up by holding the pilot ladder, making sure everything is safe. I scamper up the ladder and onto the ship, and it might go ladder to gangway or ladder to a hatch, but it's still, you're climbing over the rail of the tugboat onto a Jacob's ladder, pilot ladder, and getting on board the ship. What does that ladder look like? It's actually, it's a rope ladder with wooden steps in it. It hasn't changed in 200 years. <laughs> so you, there's a, wait, well, I get this straight. So it's, it's four in the morning. Correct. <laughs> it's probably, it might be windy out. It's dark. It's cold. It's wet. Right? Like, if I, if I get in this picture, you right? You got it perfect. There, there's a boat moving at about uh, jogging speed and you have to get off. You have to hop onto a rope ladder and then climb up that. Yes. Yeah. How did you learn to do that? <laughs> well, it's, uh, that's. The job. Yeah. That's the job. And then, and if you fall, it's a real problem because you're in between the tug and the ship. You will be crushed. Yeah. Quite I, instantly. Have you, have you known anyone who's ever fallen? Uh, there were a, one or two pilots that have fallen. Uh, several years ago, three or four pilots died in one year. From oh, my God. Falls and accidents and just horrible things that happened. But since then, it, it hasn't happened in a while. But there have been instances where the pilot gets to the top and something happens. The ladder slips, jerks, or he wasn't paying attention and, and he slips and he falls, you know, 20, 25 feet onto a steel deck. And that's really bad. Oh, oh my God. Yeah. Luckily, our group has been very safe. And I can't even remember the last time we had an accident like that. Yeah, but for they, our group, for your group, but it does happen, and it, it, it does. It happens. It happens, and something you have to keep in the back. I mean, you have to be sharp every time yeah, you do it. You have to be paying attention. Do you remember the first time you ever did the jump? Uh, yeah, it was a long time ago, but it was it was very exciting for how, me. How long ago is that? It was 1987, 86, 87, and uh, because it was you know you're stepping to your new career. I went from tugboat captain to a ship docking pilot which is a very big career step. Yeah, this is interesting. We should probably talk about this. I'm, I'm already in, into your yeah. daily routine, but the hierarchy, the kind of career ladder in, in this Well, it's, it's, a, uh, it's an apprenticeship situation. It's not something you would go to school for. To be a ship docking pilot, you have to work for one of the ship docking companies and then work your way up from deckhand to mate to captain, you know, steering the tug, learning how everything works, moving barges and get that under your belt. And then you apply to become a pilot. And then the pilot is, like I said, the next step up. So yeah, I got I, there. He goes with the ladder again. Well, so I was about to say. So we're <laughs> going to come back to this. I want to. I want to hear about this. This first ladder jump of yours. But I think this is this is a good moment for me to actually dig into a little bit of history. Your your, mm -hmm. your job history here. So this is, this is a family business, right? This yes. Is, yes. And, 
I mean, did you always know you were going to do this? No, it uh, it kind of came about as an accident. Uh, it was very clear I was not going to go to college. I just had a bit of a wanderlust in me, and I had yeah. to leave home. So I kind of left home, and uh, my father took me aside and said, look, I know you want out and you want to go have an adventure because we have these boats working down in the Gulf of Mexico that are offshore supply support vessels. You could go down there, you could work for two weeks at a time, get a paycheck, take off for two weeks, come back for two weeks and have a life. And I said, Dad, that works absolutely perfect with me. <laughs> so, so, where in the Gulf of Mexico exactly were they based at? Down in uh, Louisiana. Is that, down oh, so you Houma, said, Cameron, Morgan City, all those areas. So, so you said, Dad, you're going to tell me to go to Louisiana. I said, this <laughs> two is, weeks on, but two it was weeks perfect. Off. It was yeah. perfect for me. So yeah. I went down there and, and embraced the culture down there. It was absolutely amazing for a kid from New England to get down in Louisiana and see what was going on, to go offshore in the Gulf of Mexico, get out to these oil platforms that are 100 miles offshore, and then come back in, long runs. It was just absolutely amazing and fascinating for me but it was a perfect perfect lifestyle for me a yeah. lifestyle choice yeah and where did you, so, you said you grew up in new england i grew up in uh, connecticut yes had you ever worked on a boat when you were younger or was... growing up on the water my father always had sailboats and i grew up with boats he just had a, boats all through his life he just my father just was crazy about boats yeah so i knew my way around boats it just i naturally fell into it and so you learned to love, you actually loved doing it when you were in Louisiana. Yeah. And then that, you came that, back up here? Or? Uh, well, that job turned into delivering tugboats around the Caribbean. Uh, and we were doing some ship docking work down there, Aruba, Bonaire. And that turned into come back to New York, start working in New York. Always had it in the back of my mind that uh, being a docking pilot in New York might be the best possible job in McAllister towing. What was it about the docking pilot that, aside from the death-defying stunts? Well, it was, uh, my father was a docking pilot, and he was an owner of McAllister Towing for a while. But it seems he he really liked that part of his life the best, of being a ship docking pilot and actually being an owner or, you know, bureaucrat in the company. It wasn't, let's call it less than satisfying for him. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> The kind of guy who, who likes yeah, hopping. He, he yeah. liked being out on the water and yeah. actually doing the doing the work. And when did you uh, come back to New York? There was a, a couple episodes. It was uh, back to New York, I guess, in the I don't know early '80s, and I worked around New York Harbor for a while. And then there was a big slowdown. And the slowdown during one of the slowdowns, I was actually laid off for a while, and I ended up working in the Bahamas. They had sent a tugboat to the Bahamas, and uh, it was ship docking out of Freeport, Bahamas for yeah. two and a half years. So I did that, and that was a absolute wonderful job down there. So I never would have come there. back, except they lost that contract. It's a <laughs> pity. <laughs> yeah, so that was a lot of fun there. I also delivered a tugboat across the ocean through the Mediterranean, through the Suez Canal to Saudi Arabia. And I worked in Saudi Arabia for nine months for McAllister Towing. That was absolutely one of the high points in my life. So I'm going to ask a really dumb question. What makes a tugboat a tugboat? What's special about a tugboat that lets them kind of do this, this guiding job? It's a very overpowered boat. Yeah. And it's overpowered because it needs to push ships around, barges around. Uh, it's just the basically the shape of the hull. It's a working boat with a very big engine and a lot of traction, a lot of power. Yeah, it's, it's like a bulldozer. 
a bulldozer, but in boat form. But in boat form, yeah, correct. It, yeah, and it just, it's the size of the engine compared to the actual ship correct. itself. Correct, yeah. The hull could move along with a lot less power, but you need a lot of power to accomplish whatever mission you're doing. So, and you've been on the, these boats for, for decades, right? Yeah, too yeah. many decades. When you're working on one, what does it smell like? Give me, what does it feel like to be on one? Is it On a tugboat. Yeah, on a tugboat. Uh, well, in the old days, if you were there for like, when I was there for uh, a couple weeks at a time, all your clothes smell like diesel fuel. It's permeated just yeah. throughout everything is the diesel smell with the modern engines and modern tugs and modern ventilation you don't have that anymore did you like get used to it or you just stopped noticing it, just, it it's, well first of all it's really noisy it's you know loud like you can't believe you get a little bit of a diesel smell and the vibration is just non-stop so yeah. there's a lot of sensory overload yeah. When you're on this boat, is, which and, wears down on you. Yeah, you, you said you were taking these things across the ocean sometimes. Is yeah. that And that would be constant? Constant, yeah. So you're just like on a, it sounds like you're on a washing machine. <sighs> you're in a loud washing <laughs> machine, vibration, everything rolling, rocking. And it wears you out. It, it makes you tired. It fatigues you. But now the newer ones are less like that. The newer ones are much better. When you were taking a tugboat across the ocean, you know, in the, in the old days... How, how did you get to sleep when you're being rocked and well, you, rolled like that? You know, a, a little gentle rock is a pleasant thing, you know. It's, yeah, it's that's true. fine. Hey, you're a baby a really cradle. rough being thrown around is not that pleasant. Did it ever get like that with those? Uh, of course. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But uh, you just, you know, when you're tired, and you, you just learn to sleep that way. Men have been doing that and women have been doing that for centuries. Just sleeping when you can. When you started out, what was your first job on a boat? One of the uh, first jobs, it was deckhand on a crew boat, which was basically keeping the boat clean, cooking for the crew, handling lines, steering when I could. But my favorite recollection of my first job was on a supply boat going out to the rigs. You had to anchor the supply boat and then back down on the chain because you were presenting the stern of the supply boat to the oil rig offshore. And the oil rig would send a crane down to offload supplies. So when that operation was over, they had to heave the anchor up and proceed south. But what happened was there was a problem. The anchor chain would stack up and clog the anchor hold. So my job was to get inside the anchor locker and as the chain came down, push it over into the corners, shove the links into the corners so that the whole chain would fit in the chain locker. Otherwise it wouldn't fit. So you're running, there's this giant metal, just, I mean, massive chain coming down into this hold, into yeah. this big empty space. And as it's snaking down, you're running around like a maniac shifting. It. Pushing it, the piles <laughs> of chain into the corners. First, I thought they were screwing with me, but then I realized this, they really have to do this or the chain won't fit. But that was okay job. I'm like, no one's ever done that. I've never even thought this was a job. <laughs> like, hey, hey, new kid. Yeah. <laughs> hey, the new get kid goes there. in the get down. The new there. kid goes down in the anchor hole. Is that, is that, that's dangerous though, right? Like if you're well, if the chain slips, they said you have to run out of the hole. If the chain starts running away, you know, they said it's so, yeah. Hey. That's that's you see, you got to be careful. Well, that leads me to you were talking about. You're on this overpowered boat with a big engine, and you know. Chains everywhere. I mean, did people get injured on these boats when they're just... It's the second yeah. most dangerous job in the world is offshore towing. Really? The worst is offshore fishing. That's huh. the most dangerous occupation in the world. The second most is offshore towing. What happens to people? There's a amazing forces at work, and it's the weight and power of the tug versus what you're towing. So there's always a tow line with hundreds, hundreds of tons of pressure on it. And it's 
absolutely lethal if it starts sweeping the decks and you get caught, you know, between that wire oh and my God. Uh, the bulwarks. It cuts you in half. And I mean, and that's that's something that has happened. I mean, it's happened. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you, you just have to be very careful. Is the forces involved are tremendous? What's the worst injury you've personally seen happen to someone on a, on a boat? Hmm. The worst one I saw. Oh, he stuck his fingers in a uh, moving flywheel. What, what's uh, a flywheel? A flywheel is the big, the heavy disc on the back end of an engine where the clutch is. And uh, the engineer was, it was a pretty stupid move on his part, but he was trying to do some kind of maintenance repair and he stuck his hand down by the flywheel and oh. it ripped his fingers right off. Oh my God. So we had to find his fingers, put him in a bag and then get him off to the hospital. Oh, that God. was it. But uh, I've been aware of the, they've had horrible fires. Fires on a tugboat are, are the most dangerous. Because of all the fuel or is it? Uh, yeah, the fuel and it's it's the oil mist. Oil mist, you, you don't realize that it's flashpoint and it just blows off like a giant flare. What is oil mist? Can you explain oil that? Oil mist is if you have all the oil in the engine is usually under pressure, like pressure lines going to the turbo or different parts of the engine. All this oil is under pressure and it's hot. So if it develops a pinhole leak or a crack in one of the lines, it just sprays a fine mist in the air and it's highly, highly combustible. And if it lights up, it's the whole place is engulfed in fire. And that's that's something that can happen. I guess it happens very infrequently, but it has happened. Yeah. Uh, eventually, you moved up to being a, a tugboat captain. Correct. What was that like? Well, it's incremental steps. Your deckhand, yeah. you do that for a while. And for a while, I was actually an engineer, which is working down in the engine room. But I didn't like that as much. Uh, and I knew if I wanted to be a pilot one day or to move up, the that getting on deck to either mate or captain's level was the way to go. So first, you have to get a license through the U.S. Coast Guard, pass all those tests, get the license to be mate, captain, whatever. And then you're you have to qualify for steering the tug. Yeah. And by it's not just steering the light tug, it's making up to barges, transporting them from where they want to go, whether it's this port, New York, up to Maine or to Boston or down to Philadelphia. You're moving all over the coast. So you have to learn all these different places and how to get this job done safely. When you are steering a tugboat up to a barge or a ship, what is that process? What are the dance steps there? It's, well, it's the dispatcher will tell you, Go to X and go pick up a barge, and he'll say, pick that barge up, bring it to Y. So you have to know how to make up to it, meaning yeah. how to attach that tug to it correctly so that you can both maneuver safely. And there's a whole art to that, okay. making up to it. That's what I'm curious about, because that seems like, I mean, that's like the key step. Well, that so is key. It's how, how getting you... that tug made up correctly to an oil barge or to a deck barge. Yeah, so how do you do it? Well, it's attaching the lines. You have uh, three main lines. <laughs> it's just a recipe of your first line out, your towing strap, then your headlines, and then your stern lines. And there's a whole recipe to get that done right. And those are, you were talking about those before, the heavy, tight lines that can yes. sweep a ship's deck. I mean, what are they made out of again, exactly? The main tow wires are usually steel. Yeah. It's a heavy cable. You're attaching these heavy steel cables from the tugboat to the barge. The, yes, if it's going to tow behind for a long-distance ocean tow. How many people are doing that? How many people are involved in connecting? Usually... One or two gentlemen steering the tug and two deckhands making up the tow. So what are you doing while you're steering the, the tug? All you're doing is making sure that the men are staying safe. They're doing exactly what they're supposed to, but that they're in a safe position and they're hooking up the wire through shackles and pins and wiring it and 
making sure they're safe. That's your most important job. Are the two boats moving at that point? They're kind of drifting along at a very slow rate. It's micro-navigation of the tug to keep the tow line squared up and the men safe. How do you micro-navigate? How do you know where to move or when to move? That's all the art of uh, boat handling. And it's you just know what to do if the barge is swinging one way and you have to go with it a little bit. So you apply a little rudder, or a little engine, back this one, come ahead on that one. Are there tools or, you know, is there a computer telling you, oh, here's how we're moving, here's what's happening? Or is it just, does well, it feel? Yeah, what in modern it? days, you'll have your chart plotter, which will give you your direction and what your speed is. But what I think we really need to know is there are gauges that tell you how fast the engines are moving and gauges that also tell you where your rudders are positioned. So with your with your throttles, you can uh, just click the engines into gear and it tells you with your rudders, you know where your rudders are, so you know what the tug is going to do. Mm-hmm. And that's the art of tug handling, learning and knowing what it's going to do. How long did it take you to learn how to do that? You know, initially you're you're okay at six months. You're better at a year. You're really good after two or three years. Do you learn from mistakes? What mistake do you make mistakes? Yeah, <laughs> is, yeah, is it a guy that you can't make mistakes? Yeah, you know, you, you do yeah. learn by mistakes, but you hope it's a small enough mistake yeah. that you can correct it. But like I said, it's not something you can learn by looking at a book or seeing a movie. You have to actually do it and make these moves. Yeah, because you've got other men's safety in your hands. Yeah, at that. you got their lives. Did you always trust your captains? Oh, yeah, but you're also looking for an escape route. You know, if when you were down on the deck, you're always watching what's behind you, what's going on, where's that wire, is it going to take up? You have to be very careful. You said you have to get a license. Yes. I assume part of that is the kind of micro-handling, right, that kind of stuff. But what do you have to learn uh, to, for the, a license? The, uh, with the U.S. Coast Guard, it's mostly the rules and regulations. It's called rules of the road, the coal regs, you know, the red lights, the not under command lights, all the hundreds of questions they will ask you. It's all about the rules of the road. Yeah, you're you're in a harbor and it's you're not on the open sea. Right. You're with all these right. ships coming in and out. Yeah. So it's and sort of everyone like, has to know where they're supposed to go when it's you're meeting or overtaking. Everyone has to understand the rules. So there's no confusion. So it's complicated. It is complicated. Yeah. And you could use the scenario of like two people pushing shopping carts in the supermarket and you come head on like which way do you go? If you make a blunder, the two shopping carts bump. Well, we can't have that in the shipping world. <laughs> <laughs> in your case, it's your two barges. Bad. That's yeah, not... That's right. And two highly flammable tugboats. Correct. <laughs> not, correct. So everyone has to know the rules. But then becoming a actual pilot like you are today is the next step up. Correct. So why is that higher on the hierarchy? I mean, you, what what is it that makes that job more complicated? Aside from the, you know, well, the, it's, the, it's, the physical leaping. Yeah, it's the, <laughs> the uh, it's the level of responsibility. So now you're responsible for, as a docking pilot, you're responsible for the safe navigation of that ship. You're responsible for those two tugboats or three tugboats that are there, the men that are on there. You add it up in just dollars, and it's hundreds of millions of dollars worth of liability. And that's where the risk comes in because you're moving these vessels through cut rock channels designed in World War II and the ships are a lot bigger now. And granted, the Army Corps of Engineers has made modifications and made them bigger, but there's still a fair amount of risk there. It's perils of the sea, you know? Yeah, yeah. Shit happens. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we're we're back to your, your leap. You jump onto the rope, you clamber up. Yep. And you get on the boat. What happens next? Then you get on the. You, then you're up to the bridge of the ship, and then you first introduce yourself to the captain, tell him you're the docking pilot, and then you 
have a pilot-to-pilot conference with the Sandy Hook pilot who brought it in, who clues you into any peculiar handling issues, the upcoming traffic, where the radios are, all the stuff I need to know to take over the con. I would then go over to the captain and have a pilot-to-captain conference, and he will explain to me if there's any deficiencies with the ship, any ill handling characteristics I should know about, or peculiar things going on. So I determine then how to make up the tugs, strap the tugs up, Mm -hmm. and then proceed with our little voyage into the dock. So when you say make up the tug, I mean, that's that's what we were just talking about, the process Mm -hmm. of actually attaching the two. So now you still play a role in the attachment. I position the tugs. I get on my radio and I directly talk to the captain of the tug and I tell them to, for example, go up to the port bow and put a line up. And what goes into that thought process? What what is it that you're considering? You're saying, okay, here's where you're attaching on this ship. I'm thinking what traffic I have to meet and pass, what the tide is doing. So that changes how I'm going to make a turn at Bergen Point, specifically what berth I'm going to, what cranes I have to get around, what are the hazards along the way? Is there going to be any wind? Is it day? Is it night? What barges am I meeting? So all of those things, I've got to figure out an equation where to put these tugs. And when you say equation, I mean, are you saying like, it's a rough feel on the end. There isn't like patent paper, is there? No, it's, no, all, it's, it's yeah. all, I don't want to call it seat of the pants, but it's, all right, we'll put the tugs up here on the bow, uh, have yeah. this one follow along. And uh, if I need it, I can move it from here to there. But uh, I mean, how many tugboats at once will attach usually? Usually two, mm-hmm. but it's come up to uh, the larger ones are getting three and the largest are getting four tugs. So I guess one way to think about this is you're on the main ship and you're directing all of the action. You've got two to four tugboats that are involved Correct. in bringing this thing in and you're you're the conductor. They're the orchestra, they're yeah. the musicians and you're conducting the action Yes, from up there. You're charting the path. Correct. So you say, this is where we're going to attach. Do you actually go down and supervise no, that? Or no. no. You stay up there. In I stay up there with the captain. Do you kind of observe or watch? Or? Well, at this point, yeah. I'm giving rudder commands to the ship because mm-hmm. the ship is still under its own power. Mm-hmm. So I'm giving rudder commands and engine commands. And uh, and what are those? It's usually, I have to tell the quartermaster, uh, you know, port 10, midships, starboard 10. So those are the rudder commands. There's another guy up there. The quartermaster will give him engine commands, dead slow ahead, slow ahead, full ahead, half ahead, stop. It's again, it's that, that kind of dance that's going on between yeah. the tugboat and the main boat, and you have to be able to keep them steady. Yeah. So you're giving commands on all that. So I'm giving commands to the rudder on the ship, Yeah. the engine commands yeah. on the ship, keeping that ship right in the channel where it's supposed to be. And then I'm giving commands to the tugboats and watching out for traffic coming and going. And I'm just thinking about this again, because you got the guys on the tugs who are trying to do their kind of dance to keep their guys safe. Yeah. And then you've got you on the giant you know, container ship mm-hmm. doing a dance, trying Correct. to keep everyone safe right. and making sure no one gets hurt by these giant cables Correct. that you're attaching. Correct. There's a really high stakes thing that's happening constantly. Yeah. Every, and everyone kind of has to just coordinate over and you're just talking on, on the I guess on uh, radio hand, handheld radio handheld yep. radio the entire yep. time and you're just going back and forth mm-hmm. and there's it's all just kind of human judgment. It's half art, you know. It's just a skill you acquire over the years, and it's you just you're making these decisions as you go along. But someone that hasn't done this a thousand times before is going to make like a poor decision or a wrong decision. So it's just something that has to be done over and over and like an airline pilot you know they don't start out flying 747s they're starting out in piper cubs and moving up until they're comfortable with the next level once you've attached the tugboats what happens next 
Then we steer the vessel up the channels, make our turns or whatever we have to do, you know, telling the tugs to back or push ahead. And that gets us near the berth. Then we usually have to reconfigure the tugs to go push the ship alongside the dock. And then uh, I climb out on the bridge wing with the captain and we observe how the ship is approaching the pier. And then I have the tugs orchestrate them pushing, stopping, or backing, and just gently get that ship, nudge it just alongside the pier. My understanding is that to plot out your course to the harbor, you kind of have to know the underwater geography. Correct. How do you learn that? Well, in this modern day of these super ships coming in, the bottom is pretty flat. So you don't have to worry about the bottom, but the edges are all cut rock edges, so you can't get near it. So you just have to stay within the channel. And the channel edges are marked with buoys, but you just cannot get near them because Mm -hmm. the rock edges will tear open and cut open the side of a ship and you won't even feel it. And you just have to be sort of constantly aware of that. Constantly aware. Is there some kind of gauge that's telling you, oh, we're getting too close here, we're getting too close there? Well, you have have several things. Uh, One is our uh, biggest help is a chart plotter. And it has an image of the ship right in the channel. And it's like an overhead view and shows you exactly where you are. Your secondary mode of navigation is your radar. And that's very accurate to tell you exactly where you are. And you use bearings and compass courses to just keep yourself out of trouble. And the radar's going, and if you're getting too close to the rock, you're going to hear that beep start to change. Well, you won't hear a beep, but everyone will get pretty excited on the bridge because you're too close to the edge. (laughs) (laughs) So Because you have the captain watching what you're doing, the chief mate watching what you're doing, the Sandy Hook pilot is watching what you're doing. You have this tool called bridge management, and it's everyone is watching and helping you navigate this ship so that no mistakes are made. You have overlap of this person and that person. When this is going on, are you actually at some sort of wheel or controller, or are you giving commands and telling someone else to do it? No, the helmsman will be at the wheel. I'm actually standing behind the console and observing and kind of strolling around and looking at everything that's going on. Why is there that division of labor? Because you need that. Because mm-hmm. you need one person steering, another person on the uh, in the throttle, the captain overseeing his crew, making sure his crew is doing what I'm telling them. There's a lot of overlap, but it's everything is for safety, safety, safety. Are there any ever any surprises that come up when you're taking a boat through the harbor? Uh, yeah, we even had a surprise the other day. I asked uh, as we were coming through the channel, and uh, the helmsman had made 20 perfect rudder changes under my direction. But that 21st one, he went the wrong way. I asked for port 10, and he went starboard 10. And even before I could check it, because I usually check it, the captain barked an order, and he said, hey, Port 10. And I looked up and he had put it on starboard 10. So he was turning the ship the wrong way. But the captain caught it right away. And then I caught it right after him. And if he's turning the ship the wrong way, that could be into some other ship's path or into into the rocks, into the rocks, into the rocks. So yeah, that's luckily we're moving very slow. So it was very controlled. Nobody got excited, but that was the mistake. So that's where the bridge resource management worked, whereas the captain caught it right away. When you dock, what happens then? What's that process? Well, then, uh, There will be someone on the pier to actually tell us the exact, within a yard or two, where he wants to position the ship on the pier for the cranes to land on the cargo hatches for whatever reason. It has to be in a certain spot, pretty exact. So once we have that, then the ship's spring lines go out, and the spring lines hold the ship from moving fore and aft on the dock. And then the bow lines go out, and then the stern lines go out. They're all tightened up. The tugs can stop. 
and my job is over. How much has technology changed over the time that you've been doing this job? It's changed a lot and more environmentally than anything. I mean, I can't even tell you what we did in the past when I first started out with environmental sins. <laughs> you can't tell <laughs> I me. I can't even tell, tell you. <laughs> I mean, they were pumping oil over the side. They were yeah. pumping sewage over the side. That was just the way it was. It wasn't illegal. It was just the way it was. Then it became illegal. Uh, Is that part of why New York Harbor was New York Harbor back in the day? New York Harbor was horrible. Yeah. yeah. It was filthy, filthy. Yeah. But the government stepped in, and I, I have to say it was good because I don't think industry would have done it on their own. Government stepped in, and then no more pumping oil over the side, no more garbage over the side, no more sewage over the side, and New York Harbor has become a much, much cleaner place. Believe it or not, you can swim in New York Harbor. It's quite clean, and it's clean enough that the wood boring worms have come back. It's I don't want to call it healthy, but it's really clean. Oysters are back. It's back in the day. I mean, did like the harbor like smell like back when you were working at like start? It had a funk to it, yeah. and you would never swim. You'd never swim in the East River. Oh, it's horrible. I still, I mean, I grew up here. I still have a hard time with that idea. Yeah, so but don't forget, swim. I'm 63 years old. We're talking in the 50s. It was probably the worst. Yeah, <laughs> the 60s they started. You know, eh, maybe we should clean it up. The 70s it all got cleaned up, and here it is now, 2019, and it's clean. In terms of the technology that you actually have on, on deck, mm-hmm. I mean. Would you say that's changed the way you do your job in significant ways? Oh, yeah. The chart plotters have absolutely changed it. How so? How is it? Well, it just makes a crystal clear picture of your, let's call it spatial relations, of where the vessel is in the channel, in the turn, what's around you. So just safer. and It's just safer. Yeah. It's like you have an overhead view that's 100% accurate. And before you're flying without that. Before you're looking out the window, kind of guessing. <laughs> <laughs> because you can see you can see this part of the pie, but yeah. you can't see that part of the pie. Yeah, putting behind you, yeah, yeah. Exactly. You, you know, it's all that's blocked. So now you're seeing 360 degrees around you. So your spatial awareness is so much better. What's a mistake that you have made on this job? In my early days of piloting, before they had these chart plotters, and believe it or not, uh, before they had GPSs, the speed of a ship approaching the piers and moving in the channels you had to be very sensitive to and being a newer younger guy i sometimes was moving a little too fast and uh, creating damage by suction uh, you know going by uh, another pier or something and it creates if your ship is moving too fast it creates great suction which can tear another barge away from the dock or men get hurt or you know the ladders fall or just things like that so i had to really learn how to uh, keep my speeds down to uh, to slow it down quite a bit. So when you were younger, you used to like hot rod these barges? <laughs> I was hot rodding the stuff around, yeah. <laughs> Did yeah. you ever tear off a dock? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, really? We, we went past a uh, shipyard, and uh, we got the phone call from the shipyard saying, hey, that ship went by too fast, and it caused some damage inside. Oh, God. So it's yeah. not a good feeling. It's yeah. not a good feeling. Dad's yeah. like, hey. Yeah, <laughs> hey, <laughs> like, hey. Don't, Taking away the keys. So, I mean, your dad didn't like being a bureaucrat. Did you ever, have you ever gone into any kind of management? Or have you always been on the water? I'm actually, believe it or not, I'm getting into management right now. I'm of the age where I'm trying to wind down this piloting. And I've been offered a position in the tugboat company to go out and promote new business. And it seems our customers, they really like the idea of meeting an actual McAllister member, but also someone who's been a pilot and been on their ships all these years and has, you know, working practical knowledge instead of just a salesman going up. They really appreciate that. 
Yeah, you're the guys so, actually going to be working it, or you and people like you. Are yeah, the so they really they find it fascinating that I would go through all the trouble of meeting them in their office and uh, explaining what their tugboats are doing or what's going on in the tugboat business. Uh, what do you like most about being on the water? I would have to say it's absolutely 100%. It's the, the lifestyle of equal time here. You're working here, whether it was a week here or two weeks somewhere else, but then you had equal time home. So yeah. when you were home, you had the two weeks off, whereas... I watched my father get up at seven o'clock in the morning, go into his Manhattan office, come home at seven at night, you know, having a horrible day. And he get two days off a week and he, he just hated it. So this equal time on, equal time off with the lifestyle, it was a, a much freer existence. If you can discipline yourself for that period when you work, it's not for everybody. You have to have a little bit of a mindset. You have to be a mellow person. You can't let little stuff bother you. That probably helps when, when it comes to leaping onto that ladder. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A little bit of It's more of a long step than it is a leap. Ah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> long step on the ladder, a little ice. Yeah. This has been a really fun conversation. Thanks so much for agreeing to come on the show. Well, I hope I made it interesting for you. Like I said, it's been a great lifestyle for me. I've had nothing but fun here. It's been a great adventure. And uh, thank you for putting it out there and letting people hear what I do. That is it for this week's episode of Working. I hope you enjoyed the show. I hope you enjoy our loose summary theme we've got going. And as we continue to riff on it in the coming episodes, you might be meeting an oyster farmer soon. Just so you know, I'm giving you a little heads up. We're in talks potentially with a fireman, which is an episode I've wanted to do for a while. In fact, it was actually, I think it was Jessamine's in my first idea for an episode, and we've been trying and failing to do it ever since we've teamed up on this show, which, by the way, brings me to the fact that this show is produced, as always, by Jessamine Molly. A special thank you to Justin D. Wright for the ad music. Ordinarily, I'd harass you guys to send me an email at workingatslate.com, and I guess that is me harassing you to send me emails at workingatslate.com, but also to leave reviews if you enjoyed the show at Apple Podcasts. You thought I was going to forget that? No, I'm never going to forget to tell you guys to leave me a review. In any event, I'm Jordan Weissman. Catch us next week.